From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, seven weeks in, seven weeks in, it feels like we finally have some closure about what's going to happen with school reopenings and closures, uh, something we've both been writing about this week and something that I know uh, parents have been very curious about, uh, educators have been very curious about, administrators have been wrestling with. We finally have the roadmap of what this is going to look like. So let's break that down and explain it and talk a little bit about how we got there. Yeah, Kevin, you had a really interesting piece Thursday at the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. As our regular listeners know, uh, each week on Thursday, you kind of uh, take a deeper dive into a topic. And, And this week, you really looked at the school closures and the guidance from the State Board of Education and... You kind of came up with the conclusion of where we stand now, which is basically Idahoans should not expect normal school operations to resume this academic year. And we'll get into the specifics and the exceptions in a minute. But you really charted the fluid nature of this and how these decisions have changed and evolved over the past month. And I thought that was just as interesting as where we stand right now today. But kind of take me into the piece and and how you organized it and what you found. Well, you know, and this is something that we've been writing about and something we've been covering really since mid-March. This issue, like so many issues with the coronavirus, have been evolving right before our eyes. I mean, you go back to March 15th, that Sunday after Idaho confirmed its first coronavirus cases. And we both listened to Governor Little and his uh, teleconference with education leaders where he said, I'm not going to order a statewide closure. In fact, I'm kind of encouraging you to keep the doors open for the time being. And school officials all across the state rejected that idea and announced plans to close schools. Some made those announcements within hours of the governor's teleconference. So that led to the first chapter of the state board's involvement in this issue. And that was March 23rd, where uh, the state board issued a statewide school closure, a four-week closure for all schools, a response to the fact that school districts across the state had closed and we had really a de facto statewide school closure, but we had administrators wondering, well, now what do we do? So the state board wanted to sort of lay out some sort of a a groundwork and some sort of a a set of, of ground rules going forward. A couple of weeks later, as you covered back in early April, the state board walked it back a little bit and said, well, we're going to continue the closure, but we're going to set set up a mechanism that might allow some schools to reopen. Yeah. And eventually came out with a series of guidelines uh, that would have required uh, schools to go through a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, review and jump through a lot of hoops to reopen. That's where we were until Monday. And we were both listening to that state board meeting on Monday. Another departure and a fairly uh, dramatic one and probably the final chapter as far as this school year goes, we were both listening. Uh, The state board voted unanimously to modify the reopening criteria and the big change. And this is where, you know, where it really gets to where the rubber really hits the road here is the state board said that in order to comply with the governor's uh, reopening standards, uh, his reopening guidelines, that discourage large gatherings, public gatherings, private gatherings, the state board determined that 
classes of 10 students or more can't be allowed. So that effectively, as you reported on Monday and as I uh, reported again on Thursday, that effectively closes schools as we would think of them. I mean, the, the traditional classroom is just not going to be uh, back in session this school year. So it's been a lot of, it's been a moving target. Like so much, like I said, like so much in the coronavirus uh, story has has changed over time as we've learned more about the uh, the disease and we've learned more about the spread of the virus. You know, the circumstances change, policies change, and we now kind of know where this uh, leaves schools. Yeah, I thought Monday's meeting was really interesting, and I'm just trying to take myself back to that time on Monday. I remember following that discussion for at least 10 or 15 minutes where they were talking about aligning the new criteria with Governor Little's criteria, and I was trying to think, okay, how do I present this? What does this mean? What's the easiest way to share this with our readers. And then it took until state board member Andrew Scoggin, about 10 or 15 minutes into the discussion, said, okay, I just want to be really clear here. And I'm so glad that he made this point. Um, but Andrew Scoggin said, I just want to be really clear here, based on stage two of the governor's reopening guidelines, which we haven't even got to yet, he's capping group sizes at 10. And so yeah. Andrew Scoggin said, you know, I want to be clear. We're talking basically one teacher and nine students. And so that basically means uh, schools will not reopen for normal conditions this academic year. Uh, and to me, that brought it all home. And I think that was the moment for both of us because we were watching and listening remotely in our respective... Uh, I instant messaged in you and I said, page. did I hear that right? 10? I, I remember yeah. instant messaging you. Both had this aha moment of like, schools are not going to reopen this spring. I yeah. mean, that was... Uh, you know, that was kind of a, a watershed moment in this, uh, in this story. Yeah. And there are some exceptions that could be made, yeah. particularly in communities that have not had community spread or confirmed cases. But it's you, you talk to some superintendents about what they're envisioning, and it's not, you know, eight hours a day, full-blown, uh, normal classroom activities, even for some of these districts that want to try to do something still, right? Right. So let's talk about some of those exceptions because we're starting to see what that's going to look like. Yeah. And it's starting to take shape already around the state. A number of districts are trying to set up kind of small group learning. And we've written about this before uh, in districts like Cascade and Payette. And we've heard from Bruno Grandview and, and other districts. And what they're trying to do is set up a computer lab or set up a small group setting where you can have a handful of students, so you still meet that guideline on, you know, 10 students in a room, yeah. socially distanced, coming in maybe by appointment, and really target those appointments and really target that classroom time for students who are at risk, students who are falling behind. Um, so it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be available for all students, and it's really going to be targeted uh, to students who need the extra help. That's the Probably the biggest thing we're going to see in schools around the state in these next uh, few weeks, in these final few weeks of the year, you're seeing some outliers, and uh, we've written about them. Yeah. Uh, Sammy Edge and I have both written about Napa Christian schools that they reopened this week, and you know it's a private school, so they're not under the state board's guidelines. 
but they did want to do something that they felt complied with the governor's uh, reopen Idaho plans. Uh, you know, you know his plans. You know, Idaho rebounds. I'm sorry. I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Stumbling on the terminology. You know, Idaho rebounds plan. Uh, they felt like if they did something in, in a in a small group setting, that they could still, you know, comply with uh, Idaho rebounds. They've made a lot of changes along the way to reopen. You know, they've gotten rid of the hot lunch program. They've gotten rid of busing. They've gone to a four-day calendar instead of a five-day calendar. They're doing that fairly quickly. And, you know, a private school, a smaller private school, maybe they can make those changes more quickly. Uh, as both Greg Wilson from the governor's office and Debbie Critchfield from the state board told me this week, what's happening in Nampa Christian is it's not applicable. It's not something that you know, public schools will as easily uh, replicate. It's not so, a blueprint that the Nampa School District could follow. Uh, right. There may be some health guidelines. There may be some policies that, you know, could be applied from a private school to a public school. But public school cannot as quickly or easily and, and probably should not even, you know, you know, try to get rid of things like bus programs and hot lunch programs. Those are you know, those are woven into the social fabric of what schools provide. So for a public school, uh, those are not negotiables. Uh, those are programs that you know remain in place and, and need to remain in place. So what Nampa Christian was able to do to open its doors is not uh, something that other schools can do as easily. Yeah. Um, Devin Bodkin wrote about uh, you know, another a charter school that's trying to uh, reopen, hopefully going to reopen as early as I want to say May 18th. They're looking at a reopening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're seeing, you're seeing a smattering. You're, you're going to see a little bit, um, and you're going to see a little bit of uh, yeah, focused you know, classroom settings or focused lab settings for students who need help. But you know, as far as opening schools, that's really not going to happen and you know that's you know now we'll see how this looks in the summer and going into the fall how the state board and how school officials try to figure out where to go now you're absolutely right and just want to back up for two seconds you know even though as you correctly pointed out uh, schools will not really be reopening this academic year um what is occurring is distance learning and remote learning at the rest of Idaho's schools this year. And, it, and we've talked about and we've covered how it looks different uh, from school to school and district to district. Some uh, children are given assignments and packets that are printed off and sent home. Others have full, robust online learning experiences um, each day. But it, it varies. And so the State Board of Education, as we've reported, is looking into a statewide system that could help uh, push out lessons uh, and content as well as communication and resources and information to families with the idea that that could perhaps be online in the fall if there were extended closures, more disruptions, or another spike in coronavirus cases. That's something that Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra in particular has really focused on the last two weeks. And so you gave a really good picture of where things stand today. Um, And another thing that people are really looking at is because of the different experiences going on all across the state, people are really concerned about the achievement gaps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you call it summer slide uh, during the traditional summer break every year. But we're wondering about um, where students are going to be when they 
come back in the fall, however they do come back, and what this disruption is going to mean. Um, and, and so that's something that people are really starting to look at. Um, but yeah, you... you, you, I, you I, you know, I spoke to Spencer Barzi. He's the uh, superintendent in the West Side School District in the extreme southeast corner of eastern Idaho, and he describes it as a six-month recess. When you factor in the final couple of months of the school year and the summer break, that's how long kids are going to be out of school. And, and his his point is it's time to get back to teaching. It's time to get back to learning in the classroom. It's, it's you know, so much is being lost along the way. And Westside became an interesting piece of the, uh, you know, the larger story of school reopenings and closings. When I had a chance to talk to uh, to Barzi about the experience in, in Westside, he talked about school board was ready to reopen. The school board voted unanimously on a reopening plan uh, under those guidelines that were established back in April. So this goes. This is before Monday's uh, state board meeting. So. That all gets confusing, but the thing to focus in on here is uh, the school board there, they were ready to reopen. It's a county that has no confirmed coronavirus cases. Uh, they felt like they were in a position where they could get kids back into class and wanted to get kids back into class. The local health district rejected the district's plan to reopen. They rejected Westside's reopening plan. And the concern that the health district had was the school could not ensure social distancing. They couldn't guarantee the kids would stay six feet apart. Uh, Barzi said, well, you know, we understand that as a, as a district, but looking at our case numbers or not case numbers, uh, trustees were ready to, to take a chance. We're willing to take the chance and, and risk the, you know, and risk it. Um, he's frustrated. He, he, was, he said, you know, we went through this process, elected school board members were ready to make this move, wanted to make this move. That's got to be a decision that's made at the school board level. That, that cannot be a decision that's being made by the health district. So this is something moving forward as we watch how the state board deliberates through the summer about reopening plans for the fall. That's going to be something I'm going to watch very closely. Ultimately, who makes the decision? Who decides whether to reopen a school, who decides whether to close the school? Um, is it a school board decision? Is it a school board slash health district decision, which is how the state board structured it earlier on? You know, the health district has to sign on as well as the trustees, uh, the school board has to sign on. You know, when I talked to Greg Wilson from the governor's office about the issue on Wednesday, you know, he, you know, I could tell over the phone he he kind of kind of chuckled a little bit when I mentioned Spencer Barzi and he said, "Yeah, I've, I've talked to him. I I understand his frustrations, but I think that this has to be a collaborative decision. I think the you know the school board and the health district need to be involved. So I'm going to be very curious to see how that plays itself out as the state board tries to come up with reopening guidelines for the fall. Uh, Debbie Critchfield, president of the state board, says. We want to have guidelines in place by the end of June so school administrators can start to make decisions. So, you know, we're just out of a seven-week process that got us to this point. Now, over the next seven weeks, uh, the state board, working with educators and working with administrators, uh, is going to have to try to come up with more of a long-term plan because, you know, this isn't going away. The coronavirus uh, outbreak isn't going away. Uh, 
we will need to come up with policies to respond to whatever may happen with the outbreak. Uh, that that's not going to change. That's not going away. That's still going to be something that this board and the state is going to be wrestling with. It's something that's going to consume them this summer. And I just some of the things that I've been hearing, especially this past week, suggest to me that you know, come September, it's not most likely going to be business as usual, even if the schools do go back. And a couple examples that I caught this week. Um, during his weekly town hall telephone meeting on Tuesday, a resident asked Governor Little, you know, how long are we going to have to keep up the physical distancing, the social distancing? And she wasn't asking specifically about schools. So I want to throw that caveat out there. She was just asking in general. And Governor Little, this really, from the whole phone call, this moment keyed in on me. He said, I have to be really honest with you. Physical distancing is going to be something that is going to be with us most likely for a very, very long time. Yeah. And the governor has talked about we don't have a treatment or a cure or a vaccine for this virus. And he said that, I'm going to be honest with you, it will be a long time that we will continue this physical distancing. And I don't know what a long time means, but also during the State Board of Education meeting earlier this week on Monday, I want to say it was State Board member Linda Clark who said, when we come back in the fall, it's not going to be business as usual. And so we don't know what that looks like. And the State Board has its work cut out for itself this summer, developing those policies and those procedures. But if it was physical distancing that was in the way of a you know pretty small rural school district, the West Side School District, uh, located in far southeast Idaho, couldn't do it. Very small district. I've been there. Um, it, if that if, if that was the requirement that held their public health district back, uh, that could be interesting. Um, and that will be something that will have to be addressed going forward. So just take note of that and, and, and keep that in mind. But uh, I, I liked your story. Um, and I know people are frustrated. and And I know it's more than frustration for some people. But, but I just think that we just don't know where things stand. And I, I guess that's my biggest take-home message for this segment, and then the segment will begin next, is we just don't really know yet where things stand, and I know that that's super frustrating. It, it's, it, there's frustration, but I think you also have people who are frightened, uh, frightened right now, and will still be frightened of this situation when the school year rolls around the new school year rolls around in August, in September. Are parents going to feel comfortable sending their kids back to school? Are teachers and staff going to feel comfortable about returning to a classroom, especially you know teachers and staff who maybe are uh, you know more at risk of uh, developing complications from COVID nineteen? You know, you know folks who fall into the demographic groups that are more at risk of uh, you know contracting COVID-19, that, that unease isn't going to go away anytime soon, I suspect. I think, you know, parents are going to be concerned for their kids. I think, you know, staffers are going to be concerned for their, their health and the health of those are, you know, closest to them. None of that's going to go away. Yeah. You know, because, you know, the, the governor's right. There's not going to be a vaccine by August and there may not be a, a good, idea of therapeutics uh, that can be used uh, to offset COVID-19 by August. It might be, you know, we might be more or less in the same 
place we are in terms of treating COVID-19 that we are right now, which is you know, kind of in its infancy. I mean, we all hope for something to happen more quickly. We all hope for, for that, but you know, as has been said many times about many things, hope is not a strategy. So the state board has to come up with a strategy uh, that assumes that COVID-19 coronavirus isn't going away and all of the issues that it raises uh, aren't going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. Good place to get caught up. That's a really good piece, but the homepage www.idahoednews.org. You can check it out there. We also added a new tab uh, to the top of our page in the last week or so. There's a red bar along the top half. And if you click that, you can go back through all of our uh, COVID-19 stories over the past six weeks, seven weeks. I can't remember. Our editor mentioned how many it was the other day. And it's 119 is the number that yeah. she mentioned. And that was a couple of days ago. We've added to that. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> it's felt like a lot. Yeah. And to put a number to it, it was like, wow, this has really been the story that has, you know, defined education and public health and the economy for the past seven weeks. And it's going to continue to do so. This is uh you know, this is our beat, you know, yeah. you know, there isn't an education story right now that doesn't in some way uh, tie back to this pandemic. And yeah. we, we saw an example of it uh, Thursday. We can segue to another story. This is a big deal. And you covered this on Thursday. Some more distressing information about the economic fallout from coronavirus and COVID-19. Yeah, I hopped on um, a conference call with some state economists uh, yesterday on Thursday, and they released a new state report that showed for the month of April that state revenues missed their projection. They were $470 million below projections, and they missed it by 60%. And obviously, that's a grim uh, revenue forecast. And the reason that, you know, why are we talking about dollars and revenues and taxes here? Um, it's because education is the largest general fund expense for the state of Idaho every year. When you throw higher education in with K-12 public education, you're talking about 60% of the state's annual budget being devoted to education funding, at least at the general fund level. And so we got this pretty bleak revenue report on April, um, you know, missing revenues by $470 million dollars that corresponds to more than 10% of next year's entire budget mm -hmm. um, is, is what the stakes are. And I want to point out that state economists do have optimism. And there's good reason for some of this optimism. April is normally the state's biggest revenue month. And they knew there was going to be a hit because Governor Little intentionally delayed the deadline for Idahoans to file and pay their taxes I want to say he pushed it back from April 15th, the traditional tax day, to June 15th. And that yes. gives Idahoans a couple more months if they owe a payment or if they weren't able to get to their taxes with the disruptions, you know, kind of understandable. Gives them a couple more months to plan for this. And so it delayed revenue that the state anticipated getting through people paying their taxes. And Alex Adams... Uh, the administrator of the Division of Financial Management and Derek Santos, the chief economist, are saying what we're really anticipating is not a revenue loss so much as a revenue shift from April to June. And it was very important that the deadline for Idahoans to pay their taxes remain in June 
and this is going to get a little confusing, and I'm sorry, but the new budget year begins July 1st. And so right. they need to have those taxes paid by Idahoans by June by 15th. June 30th. Otherwise, the state is not going to balance its budget, and that's a constitutional mandate. And so, okay, so far so good. They knew there was going to be a disruption. They're just expecting the money will come in a little bit later, June rather than April. But there's a potential rub in there, uh, and it has to do with refunds. Mm -hmm. And so if taxes, if people paying taxes means more revenue going into the system, on the other hand, naturally, the state paying out refunds means there's less money available for the budget. I don't know what's going on yet. It's too early to tell, but the state has only paid out 43% of the refunds that it anticipated through the end of April. Normally, the kind of traditional logic is people who anticipate getting a refund would file early. And sure. in traditional years... The state pays out the bulk of all of its refunds in February, March, and April. Um, and so at this point, it really sounds like state economists are hoping that they overestimated the number of refunds. Otherwise, they're going to have to pay out a bunch more right at the end of the year. We don't know how much more, uh, but that could be trouble if the full forecast of refunds come to bear. Right. Yeah. I, I was struck as I read your story on Thursday and I saw what the economists were talking about. You know, we don't know yet exactly how much of an impact the coronavirus downturn is going to have on state revenues. You know, it's quite possible that this $470 million gap, largely because of income taxes, will largely go away by June. It's not, you know, that stands to reason that you're going to see that gap. That's what they're hoping now, for, and they were expecting a disruption. We don't know. But we're not going to know until the very end of this current budget year, going into the new budget year, what exactly this means. And we are still waiting to see the other shoe drop here. You know, it sounds like, you know, from what you were saying, Alex Adams from Division of Financial Management was saying, we have not yet seen an impact in sales tax collections. And we know there's going to be an impact in sales tax collections. I mean, think of, think of all of our lives right now. You know, people are just not out in this economy buying things. They're, they're hunkered down at home. Consumer confidence is low. That's all going to translate into a reduction in sales tax revenue that we haven't really started to see yet, but I anticipate we're going to see in the not too distant future. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and just income taxes, you know, the income tax that's going to be paid, whether it's paid in April or June, that's based on income that we all made in 2019 before coronavirus. Right. So what's happening right now, this historic increase in jobless claims you know, that's not going to affect income tax revenues, income taxes owed in 2019, but it's sure going to affect income taxes owed in 2020. Heading into the 2021 uh, budget cycle. So we have not seen the, we haven't seen the iceberg yet, but Correct. it doesn't take a, a meteorologist to realize that it's there and it's big. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I'm not a business reporter, and so I don't understand all the mechanics about the sales tax. 
Uh, but you're absolutely correct. Alex Adams, the DFM administrator, did say uh, he's thinking that perhaps the state has not seen the full impact on the sales tax collections yet, which are part of the three-legged stool that makes up our revenue stream. Doesn't think that they've seen the full impact of that yet. And he pointed out that during the initial pandemic, there may have been a surge in online buying and whether or not that can be sustained, we'll see. Uh, but he said something that kind of um, I took as a as a cautionary sign. And uh, Alex Adams said that it's going to take a lot of sales tax receipts on toilet paper and bottled water to make up for the loss of selling even one new vehicle. Yeah. And I think that that's what we're looking at. Um, and I think that that could be more of a long-term situation. Um, but I, I don't understand all the details about how the sales tax collections work and when it's recorded and when it shows up. Uh, but Alex did say maybe we haven't seen the full impact yet and maybe that would be something that would be going forward. Uh, so we're not out of the woods yet. And I think that's why people are bracing for another round of budget holdbacks when the new budget year does in fact begin on July 1st. And so, and I know it's one thing after another and you're going to say, when does it stop? And, and I'm going to say, I don't know. Um, yeah. No, it, it, it's, it's true. And, you know, something we've written about that I'm hoping we can get a little bit better sense of what this might look like is what happened with those 1% uh, budget holdbacks that were ordered for public schools and higher education just for this current budget year. Yeah. yeah. The $19 million that uh, was cut out of the public school budget, the $3 million that was cut out of the higher ed budget. Where I think that, that came up to what impact did that have? We're starting to get yeah. a little bit of data that gives us a sense of what, you know, what line items were being affected by K-12. And that's something that I hope we can uh, flesh out. And that might, that 1% holdback is looking to give the state maybe an extra $40 million cushion at the end of the year. So depending on what happens with income tax and sales tax over the next two months, that would be on top of uh, what the legislature had planned to you have as an ending balance. And so that 1% will get, if it goes through and if the numbers are right, it should get about $40 million, um, you know, extra. But moving this thing forward, and, you know, as we talk about the uncertainty heading into the new budget year that starts on July 1st, when you're going to start to see the full impact maybe of sales tax collections as yeah. you head into summer. Now, State agencies have been told to brace for the possibility of a 5% holdback. Yeah. Now we're talking about $90 million or thereabouts for, for public schools. Now we're talking about $15 million or thereabouts uh, for higher education. Now, when I talked to Alex Adams, when we swapped email earlier this week, he said that uh, agencies have not had to put forth plans for how to handle those 5% uh, holdbacks because uh, you know they're not... You know, and happened yet, right? But you know, they've been told to brace for it. They haven't had to submit paperwork to explain exactly how they would go about it, and how they would go about absorbing that sort of a holdback. But it doesn't take, uh, you know, it doesn't take much of an imagination to realize that if we're talking about the you know, ninety million dollar hit for for public schools, that that's going to have a very tangible effect potentially on some programs that we've been writing about and watching closely over the past uh, few years. So. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned during your coverage of the 2020 legislative session that wrapped up uh, seven years ago in March 2020, um, mm -hmm. but you mentioned what an austere 
stay the course maintenance budget they already approved for 2021. And so the 5% would be taking away from, from what was already, you know, not a bare bones budget, but a, a fairly modest budget compared to certainly the previous six years and certainly compared to coming out of the Great Recession. Right. So, you know, that was the backdrop. I mean, and that was the budget that was being crafted just as the coronavirus uh, outbreak was starting to, yeah. to spread around the country, but hadn't really hit Idaho yet. A lot has changed in the past seven weeks, as, uh, as you all know. And the budget implications, the economic implications are a huge part of the story that we're going to be following uh, very closely in, in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that was a lot to get to this week, and those probably neither one of those were very fun topics. Um, well, no, this was not the uh, the feel good show of the year in the history of the show, but uh, these are the times we're in. One thing quickly that I do want to get to that uh, you know I wanted to put on people's radar before we sign off. In the midst of all of this, we do have elections, and uh, fifteen school districts around the state will have uh, ballot measures for supplemental levies or uh, bond issues. So you know, some of the big ones that are coming up, West Ada has a $28 million supplemental levy that, uh, you know, that's a renewal of an existing levy. Uh, Jerome has a $26 million, I wanna say bond issue to build a new elementary school. We have a roundup of the school elections on our homepage at idahednews.org. So you can check that out and see if there are any elections going on in your neighborhood. Also bear in mind with elections, whether it's a school election or whether it's the primary elections that you're hoping to vote in, process is different. You know, coronavirus has affected everything. Everything, every story is a coronavirus story where, well, here's your proof. Um, your election is very different this time. It's all gonna be done absentee. It's all gonna be voted by mail. So if you're wanting to vote in anything, you need to get a ballot from your uh, county clerk or from the secretary of state's office by May 19th, that's the traditional primary election date. You have to have requested your ballot by May 19th. Then you need to mail your completed ballot into the county clerk by, so it is received by June 2nd. Yes. You, you have to mail it in in time for it to get there by June 2nd. So, so don't delay too much. June 2nd is the date that we will get election results. The clerks and the secretary of state's office will count ballots and release numbers. So it's, it's a little bit of a delayed process uh, to allow people time to request ballots and fill out ballots. So you do have time to check out and see if there's a school election in your neighborhood. Uh, check out and see if there are legislative races that you might care about in your in your part of the state. Uh, there are some congressional primaries in both uh, Democrat and uh, Democratic and Republican uh, primaries. So check out the ballot. If you haven't voted yet, if you haven't requested an absentee ballot, you have some time, but uh, time is starting to get tight. And it's super easy. If you want to do it online, one of the options, as you mentioned, is online. It's super easy to actually do it, and it just takes a couple weeks to get the ballot uh, back. But the Secretary of State's website, IdahoVotes.gov, IdahoVotes.gov, um, it, it has information about the process for the uh, all-absentee election. Uh, and then once I started typing in my information, I, you know, I'm, I'm a registered voter. And once I started typing in my information, it recognized me. Uh, and then I just had to click which ballot I wanted and yada, yada, yada. And, 
and then it takes a couple weeks, but super easy to do it online. Otherwise, uh, I know a lot of registered voters are getting postcards from either the state or the county. Right. So if you haven't done it yet, drop what you're doing right now yeah. <laughs> after the podcast and, and go online and do it. It's a fairly quick process. You'll have your ballot. Uh, you should have your ballot in plenty of time to get it filled out and mailed back. Yep. If you request it uh, today or early next week, plenty of time. Looking good. Good to go. Uh, the deadline to keep in mind, though, is May uh, 19th, which is a week from Tuesday. If you don't request it by the 19th, you're out of luck. And if they don't get your ballot back by June 2nd, it won't be counted. So keep those deadlines in mind. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, I know that we're staying busy and I know that there's a lot to uh, process and we're trying to do the best we can following all the big state meetings, following the state board of education meetings, keeping in touch with the governor's office as these crucial decisions uh, are debated and made, are debated and made. And, um, but yeah, uh, we appreciate you, you joining us and uh, putting your trust in us. Uh, you can follow us at the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. If you're on Twitter, we're at Idaho Ed News. But as always, I want to thank all of our listeners and readers uh, for joining us as we break down this ever-complicated intersection of education, politics, and education policy. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week and stay safe.